It's not about the city location, it's about the quality of the life and the amenity of the region and of that neighbourhood. And so it takes a different sort of mindset to say, well, can we create an amazing life for a young family that's not right in the dead centre of the city? Well, the answer is yes, of course we can. But we have to have the mindset to do it. And we have to use new technologies, electric vehicles. We have to think about personal mobility and getting away from the big gas guzzling car so that we actually can create what you're calling carbon neutral living, which is to try and balance your footprint. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Last week, we kicked off an important discussion about regenerative food systems that can nurture humanity and help reverse global warming. This week, we're pivoting into a conversation about community building, city living, and ushering in a new era of modern living. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, pause this episode now and go back and listen to that one. This is part two of an important deep dive into the things it will take to build that better future. I'm honored to be joined again by a master of many domains as we wander through these imaginings of what the future could hold with Stephen Cornwell. Stephen is the global director of Co, who presently resides in New York City. Co is a global place brand specializing in data, science, research, and insight user strategy, urban systems, and brand experience. Stephen Cornwell, welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back. It almost feels like we just finished the episode a minute ago. <laughs> the week goes fast, doesn't it? <laughs> Certainly. I have an perhaps unconventional question to ask at this point to get this discussion started. What embarrassed you as a kid that no longer embarrasses you today? That is a very good question. I mean, sadly, I have way too much hubris to be embarrassed, probably. I wasn't a particularly good reader, I'm being honest. I actually was slightly dyslexic, but I had a, an issue and trouble getting through long-form novels, which I don't anymore. But I always used to find that a bit of an embarrassment that I couldn't read as well as everybody else. What actually got me through was more of my social intelligence and my emotional intelligence. And so I kind of overcame that a little bit. I would have liked to be more academic for sure. I loved math, but I wasn't very good at it. Well, my embarrassment is perhaps ironic today, right? So when I was young, I was embarrassed to share with people that my parents were hippies and that I had spent much of my time growing up in shared living spaces. You were embarrassed by that growing up? I lived in a small lumber town and it was an issue to me that all my clothes came from Goodwill. Today, I'm proud of that, you know, but at the time I felt out of fashion. I didn't have the latest esprit or whatever. You would have been the poster child of sustainability back then, right? I mean, we grew asparagus and strawberries and had peach trees and raised chickens and rabbits for food. I was trying to explain this to the young kids in our office. I was trying to explain to them that fast food, the concept of fast food in the sort of 60s and 70s was relatively new concept, right? And so, you know, my mother used to go down to the Chinese takeaway store with a pot and pick up the food in the pot and take it home. That's how things have changed. <laughs> That's how dramatic things have changed since then. 
I mean, I bought myself a beautiful Alafia basket years ago to be able to go grocery shopping in. And I put all my produce in there now when I go to the farmer's market. But so I've gone back to those roots. It's that earlier sense. And I want to farm chickens, but my husband says no. And my son says, I want chickens. Let's put it where the trampoline is. And I'm just like, you'd rather have a chicken coop than a trampoline? I wonder how many chicken coops have been put into, put out of service post the pandemic. I think everyone got a chicken coop because of the supply chain problem. Assuming now we're back to normal, everyone's removing their chickens, I suspect. I don't know for sure. Well, all it takes is one raccoon that's crafty getting in to decimate the entire population. So when <laughs> we call them trash pandas, well, they're also very crafty little creatures. I live upstate. I live basically where I think Walt Disney wrote every single cartoon. And so I have every animal here. I have skunks, I have woodpeckers, I have deer, I have rabbits, I have the whole thing. And I'm the Elmer Fudd of the farm. I'm trying to keep everything out of the house. <laughs> it's great though, getting back in nature and having animals around is something I actually miss. Because I grew up in the country, but then I became a city dweller for the last 40 years, like 30 years, just in the city. And just recently rediscovered what it's like to be out around farms and people and it's great. So let's use your example. A city dweller, because of the fact that you're living in the ultimate convenience of everything, you generally have a lower carbon footprint than someone living out in the countryside, perhaps unless you have a, a regenerative farm that you're living on and you're making all of your own food. So can you talk about what the difference in that carbon footprint might be, just so people can get a picture of even someone who's mindful of what might happen? You know, I think it's changing. The challenge is the myth that actually living out of the city, because when you live in density, you have much less energy to spend on achieving your day-to-day -day living, right? So you can actually neutralize your footprint relatively easy. Still not everyone can do it, but relatively easier. When you live further out, before we had electric cars, before we had anything to do with electric mobility, you use a lot of gas driving and everyone could catch a train. So with all of that changing and personal mobility becoming electric, we still have to worry about carbon with, with you know, coal burning to create electricity, but great cities of the world reducing their coal burning and they're looking at alternative energies. And so living outside of a city, living outside of a farm where you've got natural produce, local produce, where you're surrounded by really very low cost of living too, I suspect that that's, this is all going to change. We, we talk about it a lot with what we do because there was a time where being on the green belt out of the city was frowned upon because you had to travel long distances to go to work. Well, now the work rituals have changed. No one needs to be in the middle of the city in their office to have a fruitful, big career. And we're a good example of that today. I'm upstate New York. You're somewhere on the West Coast. We're working. We're working hard. And I passed, I was in London last week. I walked from the Sanderson Hotel through a little place called Fitzrovia Place. And there was a young man lying on his back in a little park on the phone. And he was looking at his phone. As I passed him, I didn't hear the question, but all I heard was, I'm at my desk. What he said about my desk, he was lying in his bed and he was conducting a conference call in the right hand, eating a sandwich, lying on his back in the sun. The bottom line is the culture of office is forever changed. You can present, you can work anywhere. And so this whole concept that, that density produces a better result for the world, I think maybe the cities are maybe getting too overpopulated and now people can actually, without huge impacts on the globe, can now work from relatively anywhere. And I think ultimately, if you think about 
affordability as a key driver of, of great success for a community, our cities are being overdeveloped and they're too expensive. So unless we can change those things, I think you'll find new levels of carbon neutrality happening by actually focusing on innovation on that very topic in the outer belts of cities. See, I'm really encouraged to hear you say this because I anticipated that your answer would be a little different and that you would be focusing on basically getting everyone to move into cities. And presently, I mean, if you listen to the last episode or if you refer back to the conversation we had there, I shared, I don't really like living in big cities. In fact, the only city I've ever stayed in for any length of time where I felt relatively at home was Paris. And I think the reason for that is because they are so kind of community driven within the arrondissements. Like if I stayed in Les Allées Piétons, which is the second era, it's the walking alleys is literally what it's called, Les Allées Piétons, right? If I stayed in that second arrondissement, that I could get everything I needed within 100 yards of my door. And yet I could walk the whole city. And what's unique about Paris is several things. But one of them is that it's not an incredibly tall city. And I find that when I go into a large metroplex like San Francisco. I was just in San Francisco last night. The buildings are so tall that you feel rather small and they also trap more heat or more cold. So you feel more chilled or they trap wind. So it comes through in biting ways as opposed to trees. I have no, nothing against, I love cities. I mean, I love the idea, the dynamics of cities. I love the topography of cities. I think the idea of great cities can be reimagined and certainly can be better than they are waste management, clean water, the idea of homeless, the idea of regenerative buildings, the, the changes of mix of buildings will change now because we don't need all that office because people are now working other places. But I think what's happening is, certainly younger generations of people, they're moving further out where they can afford to buy. They are getting electric transport, getting an electric bike to go to the farmer's market and come back and plugging it in and they're using a car. They're jumping on the train to go to the city for work for a couple of days and they're coming back home. I think what happened is there was this mindset that we were groomed on as young, fertile teenagers at high school. But to be successful, you had to go and work in a big city. To be a great success, to innovate, you had to be in a city. We're working with Len Lease and Google up in San Francisco, up, up of course in the Bay Area, outside of the city where great innovation and corporate life is about to happen up there. And it's outside of the city centre, it's 40 minutes away. And you realise very quickly, it's not about the city location, it's about the quality of the life and the amenity of the region and of that neighbourhood. It takes a different sort of mindset to say, well, can we reject, can we create an amazing life for a young family that's not right in the dead centre of the city? Well, the answer is yes, of course we can. But we have to have the mindset to do it. And we have to use new technologies, electric vehicles. We have to think about personal mobility and getting away from the big gas guzzling car so that we actually can create what you're calling carbon neutral living, which is to try and balance your footprint. I think that's all coming I don't think we're there. This is all new. This is all post-pandemic. New work rituals are still settling down. I read last week that some companies are doing three days a week in London. Some are doing what they're calling a minimal Monday. So work from home. Don't worry about meetings, but just work. Come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because culture matters. And I think being together and then take your Friday to go do what you need to do. So we've probably, I think Sweden or Switzerland, I can't remember who went to four days a week. I think it might've been Sweden, maybe. It was Sweden. Mm -hmm. Prove that you could get as, be as productive in four as you are in five and the happiness factor for all of the people working 
went up 50% and there's more loyalty and there's more better experience. It's no surprise to me that, yeah, the top four countries in the world that sort of rank as, as the best carbon neutral cities are Copenhagen, Sweden, Reykjavik, Iceland and Vancouver, Canada, because they're all using renewables. They're going away from fossil fuels. They're using renewables. They're changing their work habits. They're changing how people work. So again, it's not just the energy change. It's the culture change. Well, and even in how people travel for work. I have worked for the last three plus years for a company called Vaxa Technologies. They have headquarters in Israel. They have manufacturing in Iceland. They have a scientist in Boston, another in New Jersey, and then they have me here in California. And we all collaborate in vastly different time zones. But to your point, four-day work weeks, I try to do that a little bit myself because I work for myself. I'm a contractor. And because the company is headquartered in Israel, they take Fridays and Saturdays off. And so I try to take Fridays as my light day. Most of the time, I don't really get to clock out before three, just because I have other things I have to take care of during the week that cut into my work time, like taking to the kids to the dentist or whatever. I think for the longest time, corporate America was about clocking in and clocking out, right? You were clocked in, you were clocked out. If you didn't turn up for a meeting, why weren't you at the office? I think the way that we think about our business at Irico too, and we try and engage with other like-minded companies to partner with, is it's just about the quality of the work and the outcomes. We don't put pressure on people to be anywhere at a certain time. We do encourage a couple of days a week in the office so that people get to know each other. You can't beat the pheromone. You need the human contact to understand. Well, I think you're more productive when you have better relationships with people and you're able to collaborate. You know, that's the biggest challenge with everybody be remote is that there's little things that slip through the cracks. It's, it's mental health issues. People don't get connected to their cause. You know, the, the idea of cause-related business, we have a, I think I said in the, in the last week, we have a central idea to our business, which is advancing humanity through place. We have a cause which says that everything that we touch has to advance the community, advance the human, whether it's architecture, placemaking, regenerative large-scale master planning, right down to a mixed-use building. We're always looking for how can we get those advancements to happen. And there are many ways that that can happen, right, through the channels that, that we operate under. But you have to have that in your sight line to enable you to do a great job. And when you're together, you get the camaraderie of that idea. Unfortunately, I travel all over the globe for work, so I'm not as there as often as I need to be, but the team are really together, Tuesday, Wednesday. We don't clock people. We're not time punching. It's so funny because when people join in America, it's about, you know, because the health system is, you know, medical is not great and, and there's a whole raft of, you only get two weeks a year. I mean, I came from Australia where it was a mandatory four-week holiday plus all the public holidays plus 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 so you've got about two months of the year to yourself it's the same with all the european countries too there's six to eight weeks a year generally speaking work their talent into the ground and they don't let them have the time to replenish so we've adopted the australian rules and all of our team get four weeks holiday and we give them paid leave and all the public holidays because in reality happy people create great work this is the bottom line. And I believe that through and through. But more companies now in technology, especially, are taking this other model, which reduces the liabilities on their books, where they don't actually grant formal vacation time. They just say, you can take reasonable time off, period, and there's no limit. But people don't take it off. They don't take it off. Now, why is that? The only reason my husband takes vacation time is I make him. And I'm just like, look, by the way, the kid's school is closed for these days. So we are going. Boom. 
we're out of here. But it's hard to change hundreds of years of culture. It's hard to change that. When someone comes out and sit like Google and says, it's unlimited time off, take the time you need, you know, you've got decades and centuries of, <laughs> of built. I mean, I think two weeks, you know, maybe three, if you've got tenure or four, if you've been there for a while. Typically, what I always think though, is that when I got here to America, my son went to a, obviously went from Australia, the Australian school system into America. And the education system here is very different. By the way, we had a French culture culture person that helped us acclim acclimatize to America. And I said to her at the time, surely Australia and America are the same. Why do I need a culture consultant? Quite nice. And what I discovered was that everything's different. Banking, I hadn't written a check for 10 years in Australia. I had to write checks everyone I got here. But the point is my son went into the education system and he was groomed. He actually had to do homework every night of the week, all four subjects and hand them back in the next day. It was like a military exercise. The first few weeks he was crushed, but something happened. He changed his behavior. He went, I can't get out from this. This is how it works. And he went from a C grade student to an A grade student over the course of two years, graduating at the top of his class by the time he got to the end. And I said, oh, I always said this to him, that wouldn't have happened to you in Australia. You would have got lost in the system. The homework was slack. There was no regimen. There's a reason New York is innovative and a big, heavy hitting city, because it's highly competitive. If you want to play football in New York City as a New York City kid, you have to try out at eight years old and you get a rejection letter <laughs> as an eight year old kid. So what it grooms is these hardworking, competitive people and that creates the industry of new york city that creates the pressure cooker that makes new york a place where the world wants to come to innovate well let's talk about new york since you're so familiar with it how close do you think new york is to getting to become a net zero way off uh, i think san francisco is probably did some quick research is at number seven in the world in terms of neutrality I was thinking Paris would be up there, but... No, it's not. It's in the top 20, though. But, you know, the thing that I think is hard for New York is it's got a absolutely broken infrastructure. It's got a very, very tired infrastructure, and it has the problem of density. Overpopulate, it has a lot of people. So your chances of living in a utopian net neutral society happen quicker in smaller European towns and in places outside of the kinds of density that New York has. New York's probably going to come last in the race to be net neutral. There are other places in, of course, in America. I was doing some quick research. I think you've got places like Aspen, Colorado. You've got Seattle, Washington. You've got San Francisco, Portland, Oregon. Places that are investing in getting off their carbon electricity systems and coal burning and getting into renewables. I mean, all of those cities feel right also because of that. You know, culturally, they're innovating. At the top of the list, though, is Burlington, Vermont, which I've never been to. But actually, all of its power, 100% of its power, is a combination of wind, solar, and hydroelectric sources. So it doesn't have any coal-burning power. It's the first in the country, in fact, to do that. Which is that? Burlington, Vermont. So I'm going to do some more research on that because it's not far from me. I think there are cities, there are places who are pushing that in all the right directions, but the big cities of, of America are not. There's too many people. It'll come in last, no doubt. San Francisco's top of the list, though. So you mentioned a couple of times that these cities are simply overpopulated, which just means that, you know, you've got high rises, people are living right on top of one another. There aren't enough green spaces to 
compensate for how many people there are. Transport may be problematic where they're getting their energy sources may be problematic and not enough easy, quick solutions to replace that with something that's kinder. Crime, safety. There's a lot of issues with overpopulation. I think there's no secret source on population. There's no one fixed number that says this should be the right density. You can also underpopulate something so you don't get the right amenity, you don't get the right services, right? So it's always a fine line with how populated you want it to be. Density is a good thing. And of course, we want to have as much density as we can. Overpopulation is when the infrastructure starts to break. Cannot service the people that are in it. And argue that- so you think that example would sit for most big, big cities like London, New York? London, actually. London's infrastructure, because it's a low-rise city and because it actually sprawls a bit more than, than New York City, is less like that. I mean, the way the boroughs are broken up here, Manhattan, of course, is a is a hotbed of density and I, I think overpopulation during the day. I think it empties out by about 5 million people at the end of the day. Well, I lived in Soho for many years, 10 years, actually. I've just moved further downtown near the office and... It's just overrun with tourists during the day, right? But at night, it's absolute ghost town. So during the day, it explodes into this massive metropolis. And then at night, it kind of clears out. So it's a very odd thing to see happen. I think a lot of big cities do that anyway. But to your point around Paris, Paris is, I think, a well-oiled machine. I'm sure it has all the, all the same problems that New York has. But all that aside, New York probably, if it doesn't pay attention to sustainability as a core driver of its development will start to break under the weight of infrastructure uh, pressure. We are conducting a little a little debate World City Conference this year in October. The headline of the debate, quite a protagonist statement, is death of the architect. Will AI finally replace the architect in our pursuit to create more resilient cities? And it's a little bit of a protagonist statement. And it's not talking about AI in general, because that's a debate that would run for 10 years. This is a more narrow debate around, well, who are the right people to design cities? Who are the right people to be making decisions? And I think for the last 100 years or longer, architects played a pivotal role because they built the largest infrastructure, which are buildings. They they were the power brokers of city design. And I think what's happened over time is that with evidence and data, with really good development of other professionals who can make good decisions around city design, urban design and master plans, architects who don't understand the human dimensions of a project or an ecosystem of a city become less and less important in those decisions. We need to get a very different model for how to create resiliency in cities. And architects, unfortunately... (laughs) They are groomed and always trained to be the apex leader of every conversation. So when you go into a room, it's the architect holding court. And I think that's finished. I think that's thankfully over and we can kind of move on to a different type of conversation around resiliency. Well, I'd like to talk about what these, the city structures that we build that people will want to live within and give a few examples before we kind of dive into that. One is this concept of a live, work, play development And we've seen quite a few of these erupt in the Silicon Valley, where you have shopping downstairs, apartments up above, maybe there's a movieplex. And I think the only reason these places actually get rented out is because we just don't have other places to rent. In some cases, it's like almost like you've got a Safeway grocery store and you've got apartments above. And again, it's kind of the same thing. Like a vertical city. Yeah. You call it live, work, play. What's very fascinating about this conceptually is that in Asia, this is the way people live. In Asia, shopping malls are at the ground. The building, you live above them. 
and culturally that's acceptable and that's a really great culture that's what happens you, you live above malls you live above retail everything is densified that way you have a great mrt you can get around hong kong very easily in america we have not really understood the idea of mixed use very well yet right certainly in new york city so if i look at all the big super towers up on 57th street they're all designed by themselves in isolation of any other conversation around how they impact that street so when you walk down 57th Street, you are just met with a series of giant towers that hit the ground heavy, that are all foyers, that are not for the general public. And so that street's shut down as something that anyone can utilise. It's become a very odd street. And I'd argue that, you know, I think there's some examples like Hudson Yards here in New York that has some great amenity in it, actually. The culture shed's fantastic. There's the High Line runs through it. There's some really good things that are happening there. And underground, you've got some really great hospitality and retail amenity. But again, the residential and corporate towers, they hit that plaza very heavy and they are giant corporatized foyers. And so there's a lack of character that happens there on the ground that has made, I think, the plaza relatively unsuccessful. Well, and I think that feeling comes through with some of these live work play developments as well, because it essentially feels like you're arriving a mall or it feels like you're arriving at a strip mall. There's no character and you don't really feel like you're in a space that is mixed use the same way that it could be. And so I think that's where the failing has occurred. Well, I'm wondering, is that a design problem or is that a, a strategy issue? And if it's a good strategy, but poorly executed then that's one thing. If it's just a terrible strategy, no, no amount of design will, will make it work. Well, and I think at this point, it's just a really terrible strategy because at the same time, we have the death of retail occurring where people are shopping on Amazon more than they're going into a shop. And so now you're trying to bring people to a space that you're even having a hard time filling with a business that will stay there because they fail in their first year or two. There's a structural issue with retail, just a general global structural issue with retail. I sat in a panel for BizNow where I had some retail brokers on stage. They were talking about the decline of retail and they were talking about it as if it was going to all come back, right? So the decline of retail, it's just, it's just a cycle. It's all coming back. And I say it's one hell of a cycle. This is a total structural change with how people consume and what they're looking for. There's a reason that Toys R Us went broke because no consumer wants to walk down aisles and aisles of plastic crap and feel good about that, right? They just don't. Young families are looking at all that going, this is just landfill with a box around it, right? There's a social conscious consumer that is coming to the fore that's actually holding these big corporations accountable. And so things like shitty malls that have no design, that are only there for consumption only to make money, they fail. Whereas you can go to Ala Moana in Hawaii, it's highest price per square foot retail leasing, and it's absolutely packed day in, day out. And this is a small little island with very low population, a lot of tourists. So when you say retail's dead, retail that has no insight into what consumers or people want or gives them a great experience is definitely dead. Definitely. And there are some examples in my local area of just spaces that have remained vacant. Like this portion of that was built for business and there's no business there. The homes are occupied, but the intention didn't follow through because they didn't plan appropriately. And that's the issue is that they didn't spend time designing what is fundamentally a great community space or a place to be that when you go to talk about retail being dead, I can still go to the Grove, which is a retail mall at its core, 
it's absolutely in high demand. <laughs> I mean, it's full. The car park is full. The retail stores are all doing really, really well. Retail's not broken, and certainly retail is not dead. What's dead is lazy development. And if you build a lazy mall that has no thought around the consumer, what the consumer needs are, that's comfort, shading, hospitality, the idea of play, the idea you can go there and not buy anything, really important, right? <laughs> so it's not just a place of consumption. Go and enjoy a nice lunch in a cafe. Exactly. Enjoy yourself. And it's a beautiful place to be and it's a shitty mall. I think what's dead is just shitty design and <laughs> crappy malls. But thank God they're dead. Thank God that's finished. So I have another extreme example. Have you been to Milton Keynes? Yes, in London, in England. <laughs> Outside of London. Bit of that side, yep. Okay. So after, I don't know, three weeks of traveling the UK, Ireland, and Scotland, you know, England, Ireland, Scotland, my husband and I decided to go to Milton Keynes. And the primary reason was he wanted to see where the Enigma machine was essentially built to break the code in World War II, because he's, he's a bit of a history buff, right? And so at the time that we were doing this trip, it was 2005, so a while ago, right? And every town that we'd visited, we had our TomTom device, which was something you used to navigate with the maps as opposed to smartphones, because it's before smartphones were as beautiful and wonderful as they are today. And we had an almanac, like actually page turner, like look at the city and figure out where you were, right? We're showing, we're showing our age, that we definitely are showing our age. <laughs> Absolutely, right? So this is before we got married and I'm like introducing him to my mother by taking my mom and him on an international trip to like where much of our heritage is from. So we had been traveling all over this area and every time you'd turn to a page in the almanac, I mean, this was a giant one, really nice. You would see that there'd be a parking here and a parking here and a parking there. And often it was just like, okay, circuitous roads, circle cities, not a lot of grid pattern, anything. Then we are arriving in Milton Keynes and you open the page and it's nothing but parking everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And I essentially arrived I'm driving. I'm, I'm the one driving because I'm the driver in the family and I'm driving on the left. And this is a, towards the tail end of our trip. We're coming back to London to leave, Right. And because of the fact that it looks like I was in Cupertino, California, like close to Apple or something like that with this grid pattern environment, I came out of the car park and went to turn to drive on the right side of the road because it just looked so much like Cupertino, the grid pattern city. And at the center of the city of everything was this mall. And it really was a mall, right? So it's like, I'd ask people where they go for fun. How often do they go to London? You know, interacting with people that work at the cafes and things like that. And the resounding responses I got, were like, oh no, I don't really go to London. I stay here. And it got to the point where it really felt like people were at the mall all the time. The, the police station is at the mall. The city hall is at the mall. And I call it a mall just because it looks like what a Western construct or in America, what we would consider a mall to be. But there's ski slope at the mall. There's Olive Garden equivalent at the mall. There's all these restaurants, there's shops, there's movies, there's everything that you might need or want there. But it's a terrible, cheap, nasty thing with terrible content. I mean, look. It wasn't fun to visit. I felt like I was going to Valley Fair. I'll be mugged at some point. <laughs> the issue, this is the issue, is that there are great malls in America. There are some amazing malls in America. I went to North Park in Dallas, which is a museum. It's a museum grade beautiful design mall. It's beautiful. It has Alexander Calder artwork in it. It's beautifully executed and it's full of life and people. 
So I think the death of the mall is not the death of the mall. It's the death of the crappy, cheap developer mall where no one has paid any attention to what your experience is going to be other than shopping. So public realm is something that's new to malls. This idea of the in-between spaces, create villages where you actually can go as a center and experience a downtown in any, like any other type of, you know, dense space where it's shaded and convenient and air conditioned and all the things that, that actually make it great indoor and outdoor. There, I've seen some terrible malls in my travels around the globe and, but the new ones that are being created are not being created as malls. In fact, that word's being removed and their town centers and their downtowns, and it's about creating that retail sort of you know, central amenity. I think the best example we have in Silicon Valley is probably Santana Row. Yeah. I don't know if you've been there, but parts of that area can feel like it's a party. Like there's a margarita or tequila specialist cocktail joint in the middle that's like some awnings and heat lamps really in the open air, right? It's kind of a high street. It's a pretend high street, but I think that's all good. It gets down to knowing your audience, understanding what they want and asking questions. I was the chief marketing officer at, um, at a seaport district for many years for Howard Hughes Corporation. And we, for many years, we had a tree lighting. We had a Christmas tree lighting, which is a Catholic tree lighting in a very Jewish district. So that's another, that's another conversation. But it was a tree lighting ceremony to celebrate the holiday. And every year, about 200 people would come. But it was a hugely costly tree. And it was, it's a Frankenstein tree, so it's a few trees to put it together. And it had been going for 86 years, every year. And one year we changed over the... We changed the tree out and we put a, a sculpture in by Symmetry Lab, who were in the west coast of the States, who did these big, glowing, interactive orbs, and we put, a, put some music in. And I think we had about 6,500 people, Tanner. It was new, it was different, it wasn't religious, it was bipartisan, it was a celebration of the holiday. The bottom line is, it's gone back to being a tree, because the investment and the time and the energy it takes to develop new rituals and new types of experiences takes time and money. And so sometimes it's easier just to go back to doing what you've always done, right? Even if it means not a lot of people are turning up. So I always think innovation is very hard in retail because it's cost money, it's risky, it can go well, it can go badly, and people don't like to take risks in retail. And so, you know, Seaport was like that. And I think we did an amazing job down there. We regenerated that whole neighborhood to being more than retail. It became a place and that was really our, by listening to the community, understanding what they needed, putting the right content in there. It's now wildly successful and I think the guys do a great job of maintaining it. It was a retail space and everyone told us retail was dead. Well, people are down there in their hundreds of thousands all the time. So we've touched a bit on what the future of cities could look like, but I don't think we've really painted a picture. Are people going to essentially live in dormitory type buildings with shared living spaces within them? Or what do you envision these younger people living in cities really wanting? Well, affordability, of course, shared apartments. I was just actually talking to a colleague in, in the Middle East last week, talking about the perceived idea of wealth in the Arabic communities, right? This is like, they're all driving Lamborghinis, right? they're all driving huge cars. And there's so many of them. There's 9 million people or something in Riyadh. It's a very dense city. How do they, and, and I think 70% of the population is under 30. So how does all this wealth happen with all these people? And what someone told me last week, which I thought was interesting, is that they are very family oriented. 
they pool their resources as a family and on one compound will have three or four families living in it and they share the amenity. It's a big industrial sort of shared kitchen. It's a shared nanny. It's a shared garden and pool. So you're not as a family individually buying six pools. You're getting one pool and you're sharing it. There's go- I think in Asian culture, you actually look after your elders. There is a generational looking after of one's family. It doesn't happen here. We're terrible to our aged. We don't look after them. We're very much a youth culture. And we're very individualistic and we don't share very well. <laughs> so, so I think what's going to happen, it's true. I think what's going to happen is you're going to get a generation that are forced into a behaviour that says, well, if I want to have a great life and I can't afford that, I have to think about doing it a different way. And I think this whole concept of share and renting communities, which is what is, which is where a lot of the technology is going, car share is going, it's where all the sharing on social is happening. That's trickling down into real estate. It's trickling down into cars. And so I think that the changing nature of the cities is you won't own a car, you'll share it. You won't own an apartment, you'll share it. You might share it with one other person, but you both might have country properties, but you both might use the central one and and share it. You'll do it Monday to Wednesday, they'll do it Wednesday to Thursday, Friday. It'll be that kind of economy that I think will actually revitalise the cities, make them vital again, where you can have the best of both worlds. You can can live in a great, beautiful home in the country or just out of the city and share something in the city. I think that's where a lot of people are heading. Well, we already have many common shared workspaces where people just rent the office space for the time that they need it. They share communal meeting rooms so that they can host meetings with individuals and have the familiarity of the space where it feels like theirs, but essentially it's like non-coworker coworkers inhabiting the space alongside you. It's just going to trickle over into the way you live your life on everything. It might be in working now, but it's going to trickle into how you might own a car or how you might own a holiday home. Fractional ownership, by the way, is not a new idea. It was always something the rich did, right? I'm going to buy my $9 million holiday home and share it with six of my rich friends. That's just now going to translate into everyday life. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, and I have a few friends who actually bought a condo in Lahaina on Maui, and they have it rented out as an Airbnb, and then they each secure a few weeks a year that they want to go and visit there. That's where the world's heading, and Airbnb's had a lot to do with this, how to share your resources. But I think that sharing and and rental culture hasn't yet penetrated the cities in the right way yet. There are still a lot of cities that are anti-Uber and that are anti-Airbnb. You know, I think so. Yeah, my city is anti-Airbnb. They say no to short-term rentals. You have to get a permit to do so. But yet there are also new styles of work where you have people coming in and wanting to rent furnished places for three to four months at a time to be a traveling nurse, as a for example. And so that's one way to get around these kind of short-term Airbnb no-no, but you can do something longer term for somebody that's professionally based and coming in. Yeah, I think the other thing I think is important about cities is that if they're just single use, back in the 60s, when we had urban sprawl, we had a housing shortage, right? And so what happened is houses were built in long rows. You know, it was the, the toontown house, housing sprawl that went out. That was all single use, which is residences. Then you had the malls over here. Then you had the corporate office park over here. That turned into a single use sprawl that every young generation after us rejected. 
<laughs> they don't want to be. Yeah, they don't like the idea of suburbia. They want to be in mixed use. They want to be in a mixed up, everything's next to them and near them. That can happen in rural and country areas. It was just designed badly. Those types of mixed use experiences can happen out there. They want to feel more like they're visiting a small European town than exactly right. something with culture and feel. And the Europeans get it right. All of their small towns all up and down Italy are all small, little community oriented. That culture is missing in America. It'll come, it has to, I mean, for affordability reasons, it will happen. But I think, think all of that to say that I don't think cities are changing their spots dramatically topographically, but their content will regenerate completely and be mixed and they'll have to think about reuse for things that are empty. I think that provides huge opportunities for people. Now, a rite of passage for children becoming teens and then adults has often been getting their driver's license. But even in my own community, where driving seems to be the norm and there isn't a lot of public transport, I'm hearing from kids that, I mean, even the kids of my friends who are 18, 19, even 20 without getting a driver's license and living in a relatively less dense area. Where do you think we're headed there? And what does it say about the future? I don't think that they can afford a car, <laughs> typically. It's not that they don't want a license per se. I think it's more about, well, if I get the license, I can't use it anyway. So I think until there are options in rural areas or in just suburban areas where carpooling and, and car share happens, there's no need for them to do it. They may as well catch public transport or get what I would call personal mobility. So an electric bike where they can, I mean, electric bikes are amazing. I think what's happening here is the idea or the utopia of a car to get from A to B is totally being transformed by electric mobility. You can get around on a bike, you can go to work and back on a bike and with the least amount of effort and actually a little bit of push is good, right? A little bit of exercise on the way isn't bad either. So that culturally is changing. And I think that's a good thing for society because you've got less cars on the road and a bit more personal mobility. That I think will make a huge difference to independence for young people. So that's where it's headed. There's always going to be a need for a car for long distance. If they want to travel on a holiday or go with their friends camping or those things. Yeah, you'll rent one or something. It's a rental community thing, but I don't think they need one. My kids certainly don't have cars, 25 and 20, have no interest in getting a car. They live, of course, in New York City where you can't really have a car. It's ridiculous. I catch the train into the city and I much prefer the train than being on the road. Much prefer the train. So I think there's just a general want to rid the cities of just millions of cars we don't need. It makes for congestion and obviously air quality. So I'm happy that's all changing. I believe it's about time that's all changing. Well, Yesterday, I was I traveled into San Francisco to see Tori Amos at the Masonic. How was that? It was fantastic, but I noticed something for the first time. For one, right next to the Masonic, tucked back was this old San Francisco restaurant called Oso, which is like a mixed-use facility, but old, aged. I think they have housing and some other things happening there too, right? Marvelous dinner right next door. Walk into the Masonic and realize for the first time and all the times I've been there, like the handles have the Freemasons insignia on them. So it's obviously built by the Masons. And I'm like, oh, the Masonic of San Francisco. How come I never made this connection in all these years? What I will say, too, is it's one of the last places standing that actually continues to sell affordable tickets to concerts I want to visit. So hats off to that. But finding parking in the city? Incredibly possible. It's still very hard. And stupid costs when you finally get it, right? I think people invest in car parks like again, like the stock market. I'll just slam a $30 
charge on every single car. I mean, it's crazy to think about this, right? You think about parking when you can just get, I think San Francisco is way ahead on autonomous vehicles too. Like it's way ahead on getting, you can get an autonomous vehicle anywhere now. And I think that's going to happen more and more across the globe. So I'm thinking that autonomous vehicles, personal mobility will sort of trump the car and there'll be a rental shed sort of idea around. Yeah. The scary thing with San Francisco is you can't necessarily do the e-bike even if you want to, because theft is such a problem. Yes. And if you go to Copenhagen, the city is set up for biking. It's actually a biking city in the car secondary. And that's what the world should be. Definitely. We'll get there. I mean, going to the Netherlands as a, for example, I once saw a t-shirt and it was a stick figure of a pedestrian getting hit by a bicycle saying F-U-U-U-U-U-C-K, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I just want it. I don't want that to be beeped out. I want people to picture it, right? And I just was like, wow, this is so perfect for this city because I got to tell you, there was at least three times that I nearly got hit by a cyclist that was going at breakneck speeds just because I didn't pay attention to the fact that I was crossing a cycling thoroughfare, which to me looked like a sidewalk. I went cycling in Amsterdam last weekend. I was there last weekend. I saw someone actually have a tram crash with a bike. But what I love about that city is that the cycling culture in that city embedded into everyone's life. And it doesn't matter if it's raining or not. They just throw like a jacket on and a scarf. They're biking. I saw a fantastic development that had... They've done some land reclamation across water to sort of try and maximise the city and put more housing down, some timber laminated buildings. I think it's punching ahead of its scale in terms of sustainability and innovation, for sure. I was mildly impressed with the city. I haven't been there for some time, but it was great. Really, really great. I was very impressed with that particular city myself. As we prepare to wrap this two-episode series with you, I really want to provide my audience with a little bit more of a snapshot into the tools and resources that they might find at Irico and how they can get involved and even potentially advocate for living spaces that they want to live in in their local communities. So what would you have to say to them about that particular thing? Well, the first thing is if you want a voice, you have to get in with your local council and you have to provide that voice. There's a lot of people sitting and judging from their laptop. The only way to get it to get things to change is to get active. You have to get active in the community. So that's number one. Number two, when we work with developers and cities, we make sure we frame placemaking with vision as the central core. I think way too many people develop places with zero vision that <laughs> they become rudderless projects that don't have a very clear direction on what they're about where they should be going what should be in them and what's right for the humans and so i would argue with any developer that we work with or any any type of uh, city we work with when they work with irico we're framing place making under four key pillars one is the spatial analytics making sure we understand the city and the spaces better than they do making sure we understand the system of that city better than they do, both roads, cycling and buildings. And so we have tools that we use to get those analytics together. We then look at positioning and why I think positioning is important is that differentiation is very important for communities. You need to decide, do you want to live in community X or community Y? And you need to make sure that you're really clear from the outset what your point of view is. So I think having a point of view and a position is what cities get wrong. They don't do that. So you never quite know what you're buying or, or what you, you're getting yourself into. Experience planning, something that's quite foreign to any city or any architect or potentially any, any developer, which is you can no longer develop something and just carve it up into GFA. 
and just say, well, that's commercial, that's residential, that's park. What does GFA stand for? Gross floor area, like all the gross realisation of the project. You can't, what we look at now is every single thing from the content, the retailers, the public spaces, the activations, the community. We try and show what we want the experience to be when everything is built and we leave. What's going to be happening after we leave? You have to do that up front. You can't just leave it to chance. So that means also planning the rooftop gardens or the community gardens that are and the green open spaces. The community centres, the public spaces, the everything that will... There's two types of activations. I mean, we keep talking about this with our clients. If you throw a free hot dog in the street, 5,000 people will turn up. No <laughs> problem at all. People like free stuff. That doesn't make a successful community. Successful communities self-generate and passive activation is where they get together as a community and they find things to do together. It doesn't cost you anything to make it happen. That's a successful community where they're actually interacting in spaces you've made for them to create moments, to create activation, to create community. Too many people don't focus on that. They focus on the towers and then leave all the in-between spaces to be dead terrible, unsafe, poorly lit spaces. So we focus on those public experiences. And then the last thing is user strategy, the human dimensions. Make sure we understand every aspect of who is going to be there. Their wants, hopes, dreams, desires. We don't just put them in a demographic category. That bears no fruit. You have to understand the behavior and the wants of those people. And that helps you shape. So they're the things we focus on. Stephen, can you help me understand who pays for this? Because I think one of the problems is we have a developer come in. They say, I'm building a high rise and here's where it's going. And it's going to have apartments up top and maybe space for res- commercial on the bottom. Three types of investment. One would be the city itself, pooling its resources and employing a placemaker like us or getting someone like us involved in community engagement and design and being the bridge between the developer, the community and the city. So we actually join those things up. The city should pay for that. When it's a large mixed use project, the city often makes the developer pay for it. And as they should, because they're going to get the most out of it. They're going to get the most. Or they issue the permit unless. That's right. And that I don't like some of that bribery. It does exist. Uh, you give us this and we'll give you that. That happens. That's deal making. That's fine. It's more making sure you have a developer that has a conscience, a social conscience about what happens after he or she leaves. If they have that mindset, you've got a very good developer and then the relationship between the city and the developer is usually very strong and we help broker some of that as well. The last thing is communities. If they pool their resources and they want a bit of strategy on what to do with their community, we ultimately will work in any capacity there to sort of help forge a community strategy that might go to government. We can do those things too. They're much harder and they're hard to fund. So typically we go with the first two, (laughs) the city and, and the developer. Yeah, one of the things that has me thinking about is there's a plan in my local community to revamp or to introduce a light rail to help people commute from one part of the city to the other, including some mixed-use spaces around it to make it a desirable kind of avenue for people to transport themselves from one part of the county to the next. And I'm really skeptical that it will ever take off and actually be built because how much red tape there is and how much it will cost to produce and how long it will take the taxes to build up in order to actually Public infrastructure is being privatised everywhere for that reason. 
transport infrastructure is being privatised. We're making transport-oriented communities or TOCs. So you get developers making the station and getting the value out of the buildings. That's where cities can get the value from development partnerships, where they get their infrastructure and the train station by giving the developer the envelope to play with. Those types of innovations are great because that means that the city gets what it needs, the developer gets what they need, and hopefully the community gets what they need. So those types of collaborations are really important. And the last question I want to ask you before we part ways today is really what great examples can people look to so that they can get a vision in their own minds about what they should be advocating for? Well, it depends what the question is. I think ultimately we're working on multiple projects at the moment in the globe. If you look at the extreme right of how to create a sustainable city, you have Saudi Arabia's The Line project right, which has got a lot of criticism, but I'm lauding it as a very big innovation because the reality is they could have built anything out there. They could do anything. They have all the money in the world. They have taken what is urban sprawl, densified it into an incredible 200 metre wide, long by 500 metre high series of sections that runs for 170 kilometres. They are mini cities within that 170 kilometer distance, which runs from Neom airport out to the Gulf of Aqaba. What's inter- what I love about that project is that's got innovation all over it. No, it hasn't yet been completely built, correct? No, no, it's it's underway. I went to the exhibition when I was there in Saudi and I was blown away. They're doing from ecology, agriculture, uh, water harvesting, transport, electricity. They are building a totally self-sustaining ecosystem and it's the first of its kind in the world. If you have any interest in seeing innovation, it's absolute edge. Go and research that project. It is amazing. I wasn't aware that they'd actually broken ground. I thought it was still a pipe dream. No, they have, they have, they're going. And it, it's probably, I mean, it's hard. It gets criticized too. But I suspect that when it's done, it'll be an exemplar of incredible, sustain, incredibly sustainable living. Well, I remember seeing the initial plans and I thought this looks like space age. I feel like I'm in an episode of Star Trek when they go to some other world, you know? Best, 10 of the best architects in the world are, are working on it and it's something to behold. I mean, look, the placemaker in me wants it to be successful. I really think you have to applaud that level of innovation, that level of dedication to something different and new. And it's tackling a lot of things at once. And of being willing to be vastly different. I mean, vastly different. It's disruptive. Yes. So it's, I mean, the Crown Prince is really redesigning Saudi Arabia from the ground up with incredible innovation. I mean, it's a really great thing to watch. Now, obviously, it's polarizing in America because of the Crown Prince and culture, but I remove that from the piece and just look at the merit of what that is. And it really is something. So I'd encourage anyone looking, watching this podcast today to go and look at the the NEOM site and open the debate on the innovation on it because it's really quite amazing. Very cool. Thank you so much for that. I love that example. And I was just thinking about really asking people to also take a look at the European cities that you have enjoyed visiting and think about what made you enjoy that space. Because there's a commonality there, I think, that we lose here in the States because we simply don't have cities with this kind of depth and breadth and length of culture. America is a young country. I mean, we can look at ourselves harshly, but in reality, when you go to Luca, it's a thousand years old. When you go to Rome, it's thousands of years old. So we don't have... Yeah, and city on top of city, really. We don't have the history. So the benefit of time, we, but hopefully we can learn from it and create something great. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate you, your work with Erico, and everything you're doing. Thank you for having me. It's been great. To connect with Stephen's important work at ERACO, visit era-co.com. That's era-co.com. Or you can always visit our show notes on your favorite podcasting platform and just click the direct link. I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. There you will find our complete transcripts as well as links to the items we discussed today, including that beautiful Saudi Arabian project. Not only will you find those direct links, but you'll also find another resource. If you choose to join our newsletter, you'll receive a five-step guide to help organize your efforts, unleash your potential, and inspire your activism. It could serve as a training guide to help you connect with your community and build a better city, a space that we all want to live and breathe in. I hope you'll also follow the link in the menu to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you listen. This simple act will help more people to discover the show, and it ultimately keeps me motivated to keep on keeping on. Thank you, listeners and watchers, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even build better spaces, better cities that save us hours of frustration from commuting to errand running and shuttling our kids from one spot to the next. We can build spaces that we want to live in, to work in, to play in, that provide a stronger sense of community and connection. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 